Welcome to the December 2021 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. Family history comes in all shapes and sizes. And if you have old documents, photographs, quilts, and other items in need of preservation, the family curator, Denise May Levenick, is here to help you with her top 10 archival supplies. Then your DNA guide, Diane Southerd, will be here to talk about what those DNA groups can and can't tell you about your family tree. Then in our Best Websites for Genealogy segment, the Archive Lady, Melissa Barker, will be here to help us navigate the National Archives website in search of genealogical information. And then we'll wrap up the year with Family Tree Magazine editor, Andrew Cook, and take a look at what the next year has in store for our genealogy research. But first, let's start off with some tree talk, and we'll do that with social media editor, Rachel Christian. Wow, it's already December, and that means that the new year and our new genealogy goals are just around the corner. Uh, I know I've been thinking about that a lot, and social media editor Rachel Christian has been too, and I think she's got a couple of great suggestions for us. Welcome back, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Well, I thought we'd take this Tree Talk segment uh, in this December episode just to kind of help people start wrapping their head around New Year's goals and, of course, in genealogy. It absolutely helps to have a goal, have a plan. Do you have some thoughts on that? How do you stay on track with genealogy goals? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, uh, this time of year, we as a magazine are definitely thinking about what our readers want to accomplish in the new year and how we can help them stick to those goals. But as we all know, you know, even the best laid plans go awry. And I forget what the statistic is, but most people don't keep their resolution past like February or something like that. <laughs> right. So we've just got a couple tips for you today about how to maybe stick with it a little longer. And uh, one of these tips actually will help you, you know, no matter how much time has passed, even if you resolve to do something in January and don't pick it up till September, hopefully this will help keep you on track for success. So we just have a few tips. The first of which comes from a great article we have on our site. It's a premium article, meaning you'll need a subscription for it. But It's called How to Create a Genealogy Research Plan, and it's by Lisa Alzo. And she talks about the fact that genealogy goals are often very long-term. You know, people will say, I want to find out who this ancestor was, or to use her example, I want to find out, you know, when my great-grandfather left his home country and the date he arrived in the United States and where he went. So that's, that's a pretty big goal. And what Lisa Alzo suggests in her article is... When you make your goals, take some time to break each of your goals up into more short-term goals. So for that example, you know, you might want to start by locating your great-grandfather in each of the censuses in the years since his immigration. So that would be a short-term goal that you would tackle first. And that can help make more long-term goals a lot more manageable and help you maybe you know, stay motivated, stay on track, and eventually achieve that long-term goal. That's a great idea. And you know, when you break it down like that, and you get really specific, then you can make that list of so which records could help me meet that goal. And then a list of where would those records be? And boy, you got an action plan pretty quick, don't you? Yeah. um, As we know, you know, big research goals like that can quickly become overwhelming. So breaking them up into smaller short term goals definitely helps keep them more manageable. The next tip 
is to keep a research log. And I know we're always pushing research logs here at Family Tree, but I wanted to bring them up specifically in this conversation because oftentimes it happens that we need to put aside a research project for a long time. You know, life just happens and we can have some stretches of time where we're working on, you know, a research project every day, but then we have to, you know, not touch it for a while. So keeping a research log is really important because it means that no matter how much time has passed, you can go back to that research log and pick up right where you left off and not have to search for the same things over again. And it really saves you a lot of time in the long run and can help, you know, keep you on track to accomplishing those bigger goals. And we've got, um, of course, a free research log that you can download from our website, and I'll be sure to put that in the show notes. Oh, perfect. Great idea. Yeah. And the the very last tip is kind of a cliche, but it's to seek out others that are also you know, pursuing their own genealogy, whether that's joining a group on social media or to join a society. Um, I know, you know, for me, no matter what goal it is, whether it's to go to the gym more or, you know, this or that, it always helps if I have someone else in on it with me. <laughs> to- <laughs> keep me accountable or to even just, you know, encourage me when I'm slacking a little bit. So that is our last piece of advice. And if anybody needs some suggestions for good groups to join, we've got several articles about good groups on social media, at least. So I'll be sure those are linked in the show notes as well. Great ideas. Okay. So number one was to break them up, to break up the question. Two was getting that research log, which of course you can download from our show notes page. And the third is, you know, a research buddy, a support team. Great ideas for a new year. Thank you so much, Rachel. And tell everybody where they can follow Family Tree Magazine on social media. They can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. See, we're on Pinterest. Uh, We've got a YouTube channel, which is great. I'll make sure all those profiles are linked in the show notes. And yeah, if you decide to follow us, thank you. And let us know what your research goals are. We would love to know. And yeah, help inspire you to make those discoveries in 2022. Perfect. Thank you so much, Rachel. We'll talk to you in January. Bye, Lisa. Happy New Year. You too. Bye-bye. Being a family historian often leads to being the family archivist. You might find yourself needing to safely store items like family Bibles, scrapbooks, or quilts. The job of correctly archiving these kinds of items can be a bit overwhelming and intimidating, but that's where Family Tree Magazine can definitely help. You'll find the article called A Genealogist's Guide to Archival Supplies at FamilyTreeMagazine.com online and the feature article Shop and Save. Preserve your family treasures with these archiving tips and tools every genealogist should have. The author of both articles is Denise May Levenick of the Family Curator blog, and she's here to help us out with her top 10 archival supplies. Welcome to the show, Denise. Thanks, Lisa. I'd love to talk about the supplies we need because obviously to complete a task, do a good job of it, we got to have the right tools. And that's certainly true when it comes to archiving. You've got 10 of your top tools that I know that you've used uh, as an archivist. What would be number one? Well, the first thing has to be, I think, archival file folders. They are not terribly expensive. And really what you want to do is put your item, whatever it is, in the highest quality folder or box or something to protect it right away. But since most of us have pictures and uh, paper, a file folder really is a good place to start. 
And because you can purchase them in a box of 50 or 100, if you have a lot of items, or just 10 or a dozen folders, it really can uh, scale to suit whatever the size of your archive might be. Um, but we really do need to take that extra step and seek out acid-free, lignin-free um, archival file folders. The, the kind you buy at the office store are just not the quality you need to, for, to preserve your papers and your photos. All right. So number one is our acid-free file folders. Okay. So number two, I see here flip top document case. This sounds like a specialty item. What are we talking about here? These boxes are so confusing. When you go to the website and you say, oh, I, I need some storage containers. It, the names I think are confusing of these document cases and mm -hmm. boxes. It looks like a mini file folder uh, box. That's exactly what it is. But here's an example of the kinds of things you can store in here. Old, rolled, you know, military photos and banquet photos. I have a process to flatten these, but meanwhile, I needed to store them. So you can reuse this kind of a box for anything. It doesn't have to just be file folders, but because it's designed for file folders, it's really perfect. It's even got a little tag to pull it out on the shelf if you need to pull it out. You can put a label. I like about five inches wide because when you get those file folders in there, it gets heavy. And a lot of us store these up on shelves and then it's just heavy to move down. I myself have some items that are definitely odd sizes, or like you said, they were originally rolled up and I haven't flattened them out and decided what I'm going to do with them yet. So that sounds great. And that kind of leads us to the third item on your list, which I see here is oversized document or photo box. So same thing. It's these kind of um, outside the normal sizes that we start to struggle right. with. And sometimes it's a, it's a really nice large item, but we don't want to necessarily fold it up. In fact, you want to unfold the item and let those folds relax. The archival suppliers make a box that is large, larger than a shirt box. Maybe it would hold an un, um, a fully opened newspaper, or if you have some portraits or drawings or maps. And they're typically quite shallow. Uh, they won't be necessarily a clamshell kind of opening. It might be a liftoff top, but you can use it for anything. And the reason it's shallow is you don't want to put a lot of weight on the things that are on the bottom. I imagine too layering things. Do we need something to buffer between if we put multiple items in these boxes? Right. That's a good idea. If you can afford it, buy, um, they make large file folders that will protect your item. And then you put it in the box. And you can keep like newspapers or maps separate. But you, of course, do not want to store newspapers with anything else but other newspapers because they're so toxic. The newsprint is just full of acid. So you want that isolated from everything else. So that must be why number four is the newspaper preservation kit. I didn't realize that there was something uniquely for this. Tell us. Yes. Newsprint is a big offender because they are so toxic. Anything they touch will turn brown, and um, it just degrades everything around it. So you want to be sure to isolate your newspapers if you're going to keep them. 
um, what they do at the library is um, photocopy on acid-free paper, or they scan it and then print a print a copy on acid-free paper and get rid of the newsprint. That sounds like a really clever way to deal with that problem. <laughs> if grandma gives you her newspapers and she's also got other stuff with it, you don't want to keep it that way. You, you need to separate it out, no. it, it sounds like. If you really want to keep like an obituary because it's an original paper or something, this is a good case for encapsulating in uh, between two sheets of archival plastic. You can encapsulate it, and then you can put it right back in that Bible because it's isolated from those pages. So I see number five, we have acid-free tissue paper. What would you be using this for? Oh, this stuff is great. I keep a stack of it here at home because, like, one time my dad gave me this. You know those stereograph things you hold up and there's a double picture? He gave me one of those. My It was my grandfather's. And it was in, of all things, an envelope box, a crummy, terrible box. And it was wrapped in red tissue paper. Well, colored tissue paper like red. Have you ever like gotten a drop of water on red tissue paper? <laughs> yeah. And all the stereo cards, the photo cards were in the box too. And, you know, being my dad, he's very strict and his, it's my way or the highway. <laughs> So I couldn't really tell him anything, but I took the box and I said, oh, he wanted it right back. I had some acid-free tissue paper. So I just took the red out and cushioned everything with the acid-free tissue paper and took some pictures of it and looked at the cards. And then I gave it back to him and it was in a lot better shape. So if you have acid-free tissue paper, you are golden for stuff like that that happens. And you can use it in the sleeves, to stuff in the sleeves of a military uniform or a wedding dress. You can wrap a pair of baby shoes in it. You can use it between uh, layers of photographs if you need to, in or paper. It's just really helpful to have on hand. Oh, it sounds like we just need a stack of it in our, our yeah. office supplies so we have it to work with. Okay, now we looked at one type of flip top box and we have number six is our acid free flip top photo and print box. So this sounds like for a unique purpose. Right. These boxes are designed different sizes. It doesn't matter what color they are. They're made out of a heavier board. And listen, if you can hear this, can you kind of hear it? Oh, yeah. It's heavier. And Actually, this little box will protect the contents against just mild changes in temperature and humidity, just the box itself. So it's a really mm -hmm. good protection. Um, these come all sizes. You can get big ones that are more like a shoe box if you have a lot of photos. You can get dividers to use in the box. But this would also be fine. Use some acid-free tissue and put a pair of baby shoes in there. Oh, yeah, because absolutely. The thing I like about these boxes is you can write on them, you know, or you can put a label. But, you know, imagine, like, I've cleaned out my parents' homes and uh, after they died. If I came across a box like this, this says to me, oh, there's something special in there. Yes, I totally agree with that. You know, you want something that signals yeah. to people 
keep this, don't toss this, this is important. So really, you're kind of dressing it up and giving them a signal that this has been already taken care of. So it needs to continue to be taken care of. Right. Well, number seven is archival albums. And um, I think this one just resonates with everybody because is there anybody who doesn't have a magnetic photo album from the 1970s where we just struggled with things sticking or you can't take it apart? And um, so the album, I guess, is going to really help us with photos, negatives, anything flat and letters. Right, right. The albums are designated archival quality. And you want to look for a binder that is archival, as well as the inside pages. And it would depend on if you want a scrapbook, then you just want the paper with you probably use photo corners. And you can mm-hmm. write uh, with a white pen or something it depends on the color, if you get white paper or black. Or if you want the plastic pages, they're very heavy plastic pages. And something to be careful about is when you put a binder together, um, you might want to put it on a shelf, a bookshelf, which is fine, but the dust can still get in the top. Yeah, light and dust is the real enemy of things that you're trying to preserve. So buy a slipcover or keep them in a your closet. Um, that's really the best place for these things because they're protected from the light and the temperature that way. Good point. I, I hadn't thought about that with my photo albums. That's a really good point. So, okay, so yeah. we can still get archival albums, archival quality. And then sometimes we have negatives. I know my husband inherited a lot of negatives from his side of the family. And we, we may or may not be ready to make prints out of all of them, but we want to keep them. What do you recommend for that? That's number eight? Well, you can use a box that mm-hmm. is designed for negatives. It's shorter. Typically, like the 35 millimeter negatives came in a little plastic sleeve that is right. good to use. You can, a lot of times you can get archival supplies at a camera store. There's a good quality, I think it's called print file, that they have available. Another option for um, negatives is the binder sleeves. They're a full page and they have little slots to put the negatives in. And then you put them in a binder that has sort of a clamshell closing. I have several of those. They work pretty well. The edges protect the negatives. Excellent. So some kind of a negative preservers. And uh, we'll ha- mm-hmm. again, we'll have links in the show notes to many of these kinds of items. Uh, number nine takes us into even more kinds of media. You have slide and media boxes. I know when I got all my VHS tapes uh, digitized, I still couldn't bring myself to throw them away, Denise. I, I know I shouldn't have this be <laughs> taking up the space on my shelf. But is that what you're talking about? If we want to keep different forms of media, there are special boxes for that too? Right, right. There are boxes that are acid-free that um, are sized for the media. Um, slides, you probably would want to keep. And you can mm-hmm. get metal slide boxes that are pretty nice. I would avoid wooden ones. I have a few of those we inherited. Okay. Um, but even metal ones I've found at the thrift shops. People have got rid of their old slide boxes. Um, the Kodak slide boxes that they came in, they're, they're not bad. The carousels, they just take up a lot of space. Remember those carousels? (laughs) But you can get um, from the archival suppliers, they make boxes for all kinds of things. 
Um, number 10, it actually reminds me of when you and I kind of probably first met, gosh, probably a dozen years ago at least. And yeah. I remember talking to you about uh, quilts. And one of your specialties is really your your knowledge of dealing with textiles. And so often we're thinking photos and paper, but if we're fortunate, we might have a, a uniform, a quilt. And number 10 was archival blue e-flute quilt preservation kit. Tell us what this is and what it can do for us. I love this, this e-flute box. Um, these archival boxes are wonderful, but they're heavy. Just the box itself has some heft. Yeah. And imagine you have a full-size bed quilt. You need a big box, which is expensive and heavy, just the box. <laughs> the e-flute is a kind of uh, plastic. You've probably seen it used in um, maybe packing material. It's got little ridges, and it's kind of a translucent plasticky stuff is the best description but it's very lightweight so if you order one of these boxes it comes flat and you kind of assemble it and um, I bought one for my quilts the only trick is because it's translucent it won't keep the light out so Mm. I have um, a beautiful old velvet album quilt and I have folded that inside a sheet and put that whole thing in the uh, e-flute box and then stored it in a dark. I have like a little archive space where I keep that kind of thing. They make them different sizes. They're economical. I I really do recommend them. If you look at your archival supplier, just look for quilt boxes or textile boxes and you should be able to find them. Gosh, Denise, you've given us 10 fantastic items to use for our archiving. And just to know that they're available, there's such a wide variety. And again, for everybody, uh, we will have links on the show notes page and details about everything that Denise has shared with us today. Thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. It's been nice to, to talk with you again, Lisa. Evolving inconsistent ethnicity reports have been kind of disconcerting to some DNA testers. Many loved the novelty factor, and some who had little-known origins really appreciated them. But others found them and the ethnicity reports kind of disappointing and maybe a little bit vague, or maybe they were just wrong. Partly in an effort to answer these questions, some of the testing companies began using these growing data sets to overhaul ancestral origin reports, and that has led to DNA test migration groups. In today's DNA Deconstructed segment, Diane Southard's here to tell us what these groups can and can't tell you. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you here to help us get some clarity around these migration groups. Um, How do these group-based results work? Yeah, it's so interesting and and it's so exciting because it's actually using a completely different kind of technology than the regular percentage-based ethnicity reports. So if you're told that you're 27% German and 13% Italian, 
those numbers are based on reference populations. So they've taken people from Germany or from Italy, they've tested their DNA, and they're finding these little markers that represent those populations or locations. And then they're just asking, do you have those markers? And if you do, they're assigning you a certain percentage that tells, yeah, you do, you're from that place. And that works fine. But as you mentioned, um, it can be a little vague. And it can be a little frustrating because they are just estimates. And when you're so reliant on a reference population, if they don't have a reference population from your specific location, well, then they can't really tell you if they're from that place. So there are some, some holes, I guess, in that kind of technology, though it is still useful and it can be helpful. So which of the companies are offering these and kind of how do they compare Right. So the, the second kind of technology, this migration technology that you were talking about is offered by Ancestry and by MyHeritage and a little bit by 23andMe, but it's not quite the same. So we're going to leave 23andMe kind of out of the equation for now, though they do offer some specific migration, not migration, but specific location groups that are a little um, more accurate than the average um, ethnicity percentage, but we're going to focus on the MyHeritage and Ancestry um, migration groups. And these, instead of being based on reference populations, these are now based on DNA matching. So it's a different kind of technology entirely. It's about a group of people who are all sharing DNA with each other. And then you're looking at that group for the similarities in the locations where their ancestors are from. And so this doesn't limit you to just people from Germany, but instead gives you insight into people who migrated from Germany, for example, to another location. And so that's what's so powerful about this technology is that you may know that your ancestor is in, say, um, Ohio in 1870, but you don't know where your ancestor came from. But you get this test and my heritage or ancestry tells you that you're part of a migration from Germany to Ohio. And then all of a sudden, you know with some confidence even where your ancestor may have come from. The the technology is so good. It's so powerful that these migration communities and groups are very accurate. So I tell people, if you see a migration group that you don't recognize, that belongs in your family history. So you should be definitely digging into that migration to see how that could possibly fit into your family history narrative. Well, that's exciting to hear that it's that accurate. I mean, that's amazing. And really, and you kind of are already leading into what my next question was, was how does the genealogist really apply it? So really, what I hear you kind of saying is that when you see them in one known location, you've got your your DNA test results, but you're not sure where they actually came from before that, this migration group may really give you the clue, the best place to look next. Absolutely. So I was working with a client recently and she was looking for an unknown great grandparent and the um, grandparent had been born in Pennsylvania. And so we're, you know, scouring Pennsylvania for records and, you know, trying to figure out how come we can't make this connection. Mm -hmm. And what her migration groups said is that she was part of a very strong New Jersey community. And so we look in the rest of her tree. I was like, do you have any other connections in any other part of your tree to New Jersey? And she was like, no, like no one, like we're not from the Northeast at all. And I was like, this is where we look. 
your missing person is from New Jersey. And as we start to look in records there for the names that we knew were associated with her family, we start finding leads. It was really exciting and really powerful. And this works. So obviously your genes don't say New Jersey on this segment over here, right? <laughs> That'd be nice. So, <laughs> so I'm assuming that the testing company is leveraging all of these trees, which is why I think ancestry and my heritage make a lot of sense because that's where we put a lot of trees. We're not putting trees on 23andMe and combining it with the DNA. That's why we they can say with pretty good yes. certainty. Right. That's the power of the combination of genetics and genealogy. And that's why I always wish that when we wrote out genetic genealogy, that we wrote it genetic and then in all caps genealogy, because (laughs) that's where the power is. And I know a lot of people hear that and like, oh, but the trees on my heritage and ancestry are wrong and da da da. And that's true. There are some, but the power of this technology is that it identifies those outliers. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, in this New Jersey group, we've got hundreds, 200, 300, 400 people who are all matching each other and we're looking in their trees and we all see this connection to New Jersey, except these four people who have their ancestors somewhere else because their tree is wrong. Well, the data is showing us that. So you don't have to worry that the information they're giving you is wrong because the trees in the system are wrong. The power is in big data, which is again, why it's possible ancestry, my heritage, because they have so much data. Data tells a story and there's always going to be outliers, but the bulk of the data will tell the true story. So these communities are really um, a help to some of those trees out there that may have some problems in them, it could actually help maybe get some more of them corrected as people. I believe that. Yeah. And I tell everyone, if you have a missing ancestor, the first place you should look is your ethnicity results. And it used to not be that way years ago. We were always like, Oh yeah, they're not really very helpful. I have totally changed my tune because the companies have improved their offerings so much. This should be your first stop when looking for a missing ancestor. Well, for all of you listening, you can read the article on FamilyTreeMagazine.com. It's called DNA Test Migration Groups, What They Can and Can't Tell You. And that comes from a larger article uh, that you'll find in the November, December 2021 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Always great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Diane. Thanks, Lisa. The U.S. National Archives has billions of records available to genealogy researchers, although not all of those records are available online by any stretch of the imagination. But there are many databases and selected record sets that can be accessed and viewed on the NARA's website. It's called archives.gov. Melissa Barker, also known as the Archive Lady, is here to help us navigate our way around this really valuable resource. Hi, Melissa, and thank you so much for joining me here on the show. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be here with you today. Well, you are the perfect person to be referring to about this, and I know that you wrote an article for Family Tree Magazine on the topic, and I'd love to have you just kind of start us off with what kind of records will be available to us at the National Archives website that would be very helpful specifically for genealogy? Well, thank you. Um, Yes, the National Archives has a very robust website. And like you mentioned, maybe not every document or record set is genealogy related, but they do have a tremendous amount of records on their website for genealogists. And one of the first things I would encourage genealogists to do 
is to go right to that landing page or the main page when you go to their website. There is so much information just on that one page alone. Uh, and so go there first, look at some of the links and some of the information that is on that front page. I think you'll be surprised by how much is there. Once you get there, then look for some quick links that will take you to other places on the website. And one of the quick links that is very important to us as genealogists is the genealogist link. Uh, and that genealogist link, when you click on it, it's going to take you to pages that are completely full of genealogical information. Uh, and so once you get there, you can start your family search uh, section. There's a family search section, and it has links to start your genealogy research, gives you some advice and tips, which is always great, especially for those genealogy beginners. Uh, they have genealogy resources. They have charts and forms. How many of us as genealogists are always looking for forms, fillable forms and charts? And they have some databases at the National Archives facilities and videos that they have on YouTube. I love watching their videos on YouTube. So one of the more popular sections that there are links to that will give us genealogical information are census records. Uh, military records is a big thing on the U.S. National Archives website. They have fantastic links to military service records. They have ways you can order these records. And they even have some digitized records on their website. Immigration records, many of us as genealogists are trying to find when our ancestors immigrated to the United States, and naturalization records. Uh, these are on their website. They are uh, on there in different forms, but you can go there, get the information you need. Maybe you may have to contact the National Archives and order these records, which is very easy to do. I've done it. Uh, you may have to wait a little bit to get the records back. But there are also some great places on there for electronic records for genealogy. And there's a catalog guide for genealogists. So the U.S. National Archives really is got their website kind of set up for researchers, but especially for genealogists. They understand the genealogy world and how we are constantly looking for our ancestors. Terrific. So you've mentioned census, military, immigration, naturalization. I know there's lots of court records on there, too. And it, it wouldn't be surprising if some of our ancestors might have shown up in those, right? Absolutely. Court records. And don't think about it that your ancestors may have actually committed a crime. <laughs> there right. are other types of court records that your ancestors may have been involved in. Maybe they had a land dispute or maybe there where they lived, they were trying to take your ancestors' land because they wanted to build a road. And so then maybe they went to court. Uh, maybe there are some court records because of a last will and testament or an estate. So court records could include just about any kind of anything that happens in our ancestors' lives. Wonderful. So we get to the site and I see they have a search feature. Um, I imagine though that this isn't necessarily always name search like we're used to at the big genealogy web websites, right? I'd love to hear what are some of your top strategies for searching the National Archives website? Well, I always encourage genealogists to use the search feature on any website, but I also let them know that those search features are not foolproof, especially when it comes to trying to search for your surnames. And so what I tend to do is I will put in my surnames, but then I will also put in certain topic ideas, or I will put in a place name. Uh, like for instance, in our area, the Tennessee Valley Authority was very is very prevalent here. And we have areas where 
They actually were recreating dams at certain periods of time. So they flooded complete cities. Uh, and so I have gone there and I have looked for Tennessee Valley Authority records by using the search feature. And I've been able to find records. So don't just put surnames in there. Put other topics in there or keywords that might help you to find records pertaining to your ancestors. Oh, that's a great idea. Now, we know that there are some that are digitized, and we could just download those for free. But then there'll be other things that the catalog will refer to, but we're going to need to be able to access it in person. What are our options for in-person, online ordering, um, ways to access the documents that are not digitized and downloadable on the website? I'm so glad you mentioned the catalog. They have several kinds of catalogs, actually. They have the microfilm catalog that allows you to see what they have available on microfilm. They have the finding aid catalog. Now, that is very, very important. As an archivist, I am always pushing for genealogists to do research in manuscript collections. And so manuscript collections have a document associated with them called the finding aid. And that finding aid is a box-by-box, folder-by-folder listing of what is in the collection. And so you can look at these finding aids online on the website. And if you see something that is of interest to you about your ancestor or something you think might help you in your research, that's when you go to the section on the website where you can order records. And when you go there, there are fillable forms there for you to put the information in there, your personal information, where you want your records sent to. And then you can fill it in online electronically of what record sources you would like to request. Oh, that's terrific. They, they do make it pretty straightforward. I imagine it's not real quick necessarily to receive things, but you definitely have a process to be able to do it. You don't have to necessarily go and visit online. I'm really glad you mentioned the finding aids because I know we've talked about that before and they're just such a wonderful, valuable resource. And a lot of genealogists don't really turn to those, do they? They don't. And one of the reasons is because finding aids can be quite academic when you read them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so how I'd like to describe a manuscript collection to someone who does not know what one is, is like this. Think about all the genealogical records that you have in your possession, all of the old family letters, the scrapbooks, the diaries. Maybe you have the family Bible, grandma's quilt even. Maybe you have a lock of hair. Take all of those items and put them in boxes and donate them to an archive. And that is a manuscript collection. So when I describe something like that, the genealogist's eyes really light up to, they, they really understand that literally anything can be in a manuscript collection and it will be listed in the finding aid. And so that's why we need to read these finding aids and especially read the section of the contents listing, which will tell you what exactly is in the collection. Excellent. Well, We've been talking about archives.gov and uh, what a tremendous resource it is. And of course, Melissa, you're a tremendous resource. You have a blog, A Genealogist in the Archives. Tell folks what they can find over there. Uh, Yes, I started that blog in 2015, and I am a genealogist for 32 years, but I'm also an archivist for the past 10 years. And so I take what my experience as a genealogist and as an archivist, and I tell genealogists in my blog how to do records preservation, how to do research in archives. And so it's also a great blog to find that kind of information uh, if you're looking to do research in an archive. Terrific. Well, those listening can Google a genealogist in the archives, and you can also find the archive lady on Facebook. 
Melissa Barker, thank you so much for giving us a great little quick overview and tour of the National Archives website. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lisa. Well, we're coming to the end of the last episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast for 2021. But there's an exciting year ahead. So I think this is a great point to uh, stop by the editor's desk and visit with Andrew Cook, the editor of Family Tree Magazine. And uh, let's recap where we've been and where we are headed. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. Well, it's been an exciting year for you. I know your family's been growing and the magazine has certainly been busy. I'd love to know what are some of your highlights from the magazine this year in 2021? Oh, gosh. Well, we've covered a lot of really interesting topics from the 1890 federal census to our annual lists of the best uh, websites for genealogists. So you can check all that out online. In the magazine in particular, this year, we we launched a new column called Source Spotlight. We've talked about that on the magazine. And we also relaunched our state guides now with a new format and uh, getting those to date and getting those back in front of people. We know they're very popular and uh, we've got them online now in a really nice way. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun year and uh, already turning the corner, working on the March, April issue already, if you can believe that. Yeah, I do. You, you are always so organized and ahead of schedule. Um, I, I'd love to know, cause I know that you, you get a really great overview just in your role there as editor, kind of seeing what's happening in the genealogy industry. What were some of the news items that kind of stood out to you? Well, every year, more and more records are added to these giant databases of these genealogy websites. And this year was definitely no exception. Ancestry.com launched huge collections of patent records, as well as really impressive collection of Freedmen's Bureau records. Uh, Find My Past is their collection of birth, marriage, and death records from Scotland is up to 10 million. And both Ancestry and MyHeritage acquired French genealogy websites this year. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But as a result of that, they've both added really impressive genealogy collections from France as well. But the big, like the headline showstopper uh, news, I think for the whole year really, was that Family Search finished digitizing its microfilm. And that's gonna, that brought all kinds of new records uh, into the fold, although many of them are still unindexed. Yeah, I agree. That was huge. And of course, the, I love the fact that they're putting the images so quickly online. So Mm -hmm. if you're really anxious, you don't even have to wait for the index. You can go in there. If you kind of know generally where you're looking, you can start combing through them right away. So it's really nice. And it wouldn't be uh, genealogy news without some DNA updates as well. So each of the companies over the course of the year have rolled out some new features or updated existing features. Family Tree DNA, for example, they have a new chromosome painter and they just started X chromosome matching. While MyHeritage really early this year launched its genetic groups functionality, which traces groups of people that migrated together across different countries and even across continents. And they more recently launched a DNA label functionality while also updating their theory of family relativity. Likewise, Ancestry DNA updated its ethnicity estimates and its own migration group tool called Genetic Communities. Um, and I, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking about new features here, but Ancestry and MyHeritage also both retired their health DNA tests. So it's been interesting to see how that kind of waxed and waned um, over the last couple of years. Yeah, that DNA space just kind of keeps moving, doesn't it? it keeps evolving and. Mm-hmm. 
don't think there was quite as much of a demand for the health side of things. Mm-hmm. A lot of the websites too had updates, didn't they, in 2021? Mm-hmm. Yep. Family Search just rolled out a new search interface that our listeners may have noticed. The underlying search functionality of the site hasn't changed, but it looks a lot cleaner. It's a little bit fresher. So um, definitely check that out, if, that out if you haven't. And another big headline for the year were the new photo colorization and enhancement tools that MyHeritage rolled out and that a lot of people have taken advantage of, including that kind of quirky deep nostalgia feature that it brings life in a very kind of visual way to old photographs. Oh, yeah, the animation the, the, mm-hmm. and the animation of the faces. It was really amazing that that just kind of went viral online. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. And more from the industry side of things, too. There were some big movements. Both Family Tree DNA and MyHeritage got new ownership while 23andMe took its company public in a new sort of phase of that company's history. And as I said earlier, Ancestry and MyHeritage both acquired French websites, Genianet and Filet, respectively. So sort of broadening the scope of their brands underneath their purview and bringing more records into their fold. Yeah, just continuing to expand that international reach, which is terrific because I think it brings more international uh, users as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that goes two ways, too. Both those sites, Genianet and Filet, um, sort of have more resources to work with, too, mm-hmm. um, being part of these bigger networks. Absolutely. And, uh, of course, Roots Tech pulled it off virtually again in 2021. Mm-hmm. Yep. They drew, from the accounts I heard, over 1 million registrants, which is so impressive. And because it was all online and all free, you were able to access the videos from Roots Tech, all those presentations, all year long. And so if you're still listening to this before the next Roots Tech event, you'll be able to go back and listen to those on their site, which is really great. And a couple other sort of odds and ends that happened this year. The much anticipated, highly popular genealogy program, Roots Magic, just released its newest edition, Roots Magic 8. So that's a great product for people who want to get organized from the comfort of their own desktop. And finally, the National Archives branch in Seattle, which at one time was in danger of closing, uh, is off the hook for right now. The federal government said that they were going to uh, pursue other options and keep the branch open, at least for the time being. Yeah, it's nice to have as many archive branches open as we can get. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was good news indeed. So how about looking ahead for 2022? What's on your radar? More record releases. At least, yes. you know, we don't know all of what's going to be released in the next coming year, but we know of two really big ones. The first is the 1921 Census of England and Wales. And that's going to be exclusively on Find My Past beginning in January. That's a valuable record set because of what happened to the 1931 census. It was destroyed. uh, And there was no 1941 census for those countries. So 1921 is really a crucial record set if you've got ancestors in England and Wales. And um, the second big piece for our U.S. audience in particular is the 1950 U.S. census. Much anticipated. Finally, out of that 72-year privacy window. And it'll be really interesting when that comes online in April. There won't be indexes yet. So if you want to take advantage of that, you'll have to um, do some legwork ahead. And I know you've got some great videos on the Genealogy Gems YouTube channel about that. Yeah, we've been kind of ramping up for the 1950 census for the last year. And it's really that enumeration district number. If we can get our hands on that, we can start mm-hmm. combing through those images even before the index. So, But I'm sure they're going to have it in lightning speed too, which is going to be terrific, the the index. 
Yeah. And, then, and they're always looking for help too with yes. indexing. So that that's a great project. If you've got some time coming up this spring and you want to pitch in and give back a bit to the genealogy community, I'm sure they would appreciate the help. Exactly. And there's, of course, going to be Roots Tech again this year. And is that going to be in person? Do you know? It is not. It is also, once again, going to be all online and all free. That's March 3rd through 5th. So just like last year, they're going to have their own platform. It's free to register. You'll have access to all kinds of uh, different presentations on all these different topics and to the Expo Hall where we'll be exhibitors again, Family Tree Magazine. So yeah, that'll be a great opportunity to uh, reach out with other genealogists and to hear the latest from the family history industry. Yeah, there's a lot to look forward to in 2022 um, in the industry and, of course, right there in the pages of Family Tree Magazine. It's been a wonderful year. Thank you so much, Andrew. I I love doing this podcast. It's always fun to check in with you and can't wait to see what's going to be coming up in the new year. So thank you so much. Yeah, it'll be a great year. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for the December 2021 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. You'll find links and uh, details on everything we talked about in this episode at our show notes page. It's familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, we sure would appreciate your positive review in whichever podcasting app that you use. Again, I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me over at my website, genealogygems.com and uh, add my Genealogy Gems podcast to your podcast queue as well. Until next time, Happy New Year and have fun climbing your family tree.